I want to say hello to the folks at uh, both Hendersonville and uh, uh, folks here at Arden, but also definitely want to talk to our folks online. Thank you for joining us uh, online. I know this is a crazy time, but uh, we got folks watching from all over, so thank you for doing that. Whether you're on Facebook, whether you're on the webcast, or whether you're on YouTube, man, please participate. You got folks sitting there ready to answer your questions, your comments, chat. Anything like that, please let us know how we can uh, help. And before we kind of jump in, let me uh, say on behalf of anybody who says Biltmore Church is home, thanks for being uh, the church while uh, coming to church is uh, a bit uh, different than it typically is, all right? And so one of the things that uh, this always comes to mind, but I shared with you a story just a couple weeks ago, but even today at lunch, um, I was having lunch at a local restaurant and a person came up and she just began to talk about how you had ministered to her during this crazy time. And she actually got so emotional. She said, excuse me, I've got to leave before I start crying in front of you. So just thanks again for being the church. Uh, there's thousands of stories like that. So great, great job. Just because uh, we can't come to church as much right now doesn't mean we can't be the church. All right. And so one of the things we talk about all the time is uh, we're here uh, to, uh, glorify God by making disciples of uh, Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. And we talk about reaching up and reaching out and uh, reaching in. And so when it comes to reaching, when it comes to reaching up, that's kind of what we're doing right now, right? Whether it be the great music, whether it be getting into God's word, prayer, uh, generosity, all that stuff, it's, it's, it's that, all right? So great, great job on that. And, and again, I want to brag on you. I have not gotten, and this is, I have not gotten an email in three weeks about uh, complaining about wearing a mask. It's awesome, all right? Great, great job, all right? Don't, don't break the streak now, but just saying thank you for just saying, hey, you know what? Whatever you think about it, you're putting somebody else's interest in front of your own, and you're being considerate, so way to go. And if you haven't been able to make a Thursday night, and when you feel like you can and safe, make sure you RSVP, because one of the things we're doing is both Hendersonville and uh, Arden are limiting to like 20%. And so, uh, again, when it's gone, it is gone. But thank you for, uh, for that. We talk about reaching in, uh, lean into your connect group. And here's one last thing, and that is reaching out. There's a bunch of stuff you've done individually. I want to put two things out for real quick for you in about a month, and you'll hear a bunch about it in the coming month. Uh, we are in the process of coordinating a very large initiative uh, to the public schools. All right, there's going to be about 25 schools that will be impacted by that, uh, some of them deeper than others, but about 25 public schools uh, in uh, three and a half counties. All right, so in the three counties we have, we have campuses in, Buncombe and Henderson and Macon, and we've also got a, 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 a school uh, there in Transylvania County that we're going to try to bless. One of the things that uh, one of our values is we want to declare the gospel and we want to demonstrate the gospel. You'll be a blessing to our community. So just realize there's a place for everybody to do that, whether it be bringing supplies so our teachers don't have to dig into their pockets or whether it be throwing mulch or whether it be uh, loving on, uh, you know, giving some stuff to some students. And there's about 12 of those are high, high, high need schools. And you'll hear more about that. So no further ado, uh, Philippians 3 is where we're going to be. So here, let me just paint a picture for you, and this is a subject we have touched on off and on throughout the years, the 12 years that I've been here. We touch on it in little ways almost all the time, and in some ways, uh, we sit down in it a, a, a lot. And uh, the, the picture that comes to mind is what happens, it's probably the only negative thing that happens when you go to the beach, and that's the undertow or the rip current, all right? If you're out there, you're having a great time. Some beaches are like, be careful, there is a strong undertow or there's a super strong rip current. And basically what that is, is the current below is different than the current on top. And so if you're sitting there in the surf, if you're not careful, that undertow can start to try to take you out into the ocean. 
about 150 people die every single year from a riptide. They're sitting there, they're thinking everything is great, and all of a sudden they are swept out into the sea and they cannot do anything about it. And the reason I say that is this, there has always been a very strong, dangerous undercurrent that tries to pull Christians even from the purity of the gospel into what we're just gonna define as religion. To try to say, you know what, it's not about the gospel, let's add on some stuff on religion, and it is anything but safe. And again, we've touched on this a whole bunch of times, and for two reasons. Number one, it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. So when we go through a book of the Bible like Galatians or Ephesians or like Philippians now, it's like, there it is right there, the danger. Let me just say this way. God hates religion. Some of you are like confused. You're like, I thought we were, I thought we were religious. No, down with religion, up with the gospel. They're very, very different. So number one, it's all over the Bible. And number two, we are hardwired to drift toward religion. We're hardwired to do that. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, he put it this way. He said, our hearts are hardwired for works righteousness. He said, religion is the default mode of the human heart. So here's what I want to just say. Uh, You're like, uh, how do you distinguish religion and the gospel? Religion is form without function. Form without, rules without relationship. It is uh, me coming to God on my terms, with my agenda, on the basis of my achievements. That is, that, that's religion. It is so dangerous that the Apostle Paul, in our text tonight, actually uses the closest thing to cussing you're going to find in the New Testament. There's a word here that maybe there's one over in Romans 6 when he says, God forbid. If it's not that word, it's the word we're going to see. It is a word that is... A Jewish mom would have washed out her kid's mouth with soap 2,000 years ago if they used this term. And he says, you know what? We want to be so aware of the dangers of religion versus the gospel. He uses in some ways a shock word. Jesus fought with leaders over religion all the time. So here's what I'm going to do. For like, there's a lot of culture in this text. So we're going to walk through about five or six verses. And then what I'm going to try to distinguish tonight is this. What is the difference what is the difference between religion uh, and, and the gospel? And I will tell you this flat out. If you and I can just grasp parts of this, it is the most freeing understanding that you could have as a Christian. It's like, man, I feel, I'm walking out of church today, set free. So the context in this is, if you hadn't been with us, Philippians is basically a church the Apostle Paul founded about a decade before. He had uh, basically as the founders of, his, of the church, he had a, basically a CEO businesswoman He had a person who was demon-possessed, a girl who was being basically pimped out, and then he had Joe Screwdriver who was a jailer, a rough, tough, blue-collar, and he said, that's what I'm gonna build a church with. And then the church exploded, it's doing great, and then about 10 years later, he writes them back, and here's what he says. Let me just kind of walk in, I'll do a little commentary on these verses, and then we're gonna jump into the differences. He says this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So right off the bat, confidence in the flesh, just put that in your mind as religion. It's me working my way back up to God by what I do. He says, if anybody else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, listen, if any of you all are thinking that you're going to bring your resume to God and say, look what I've done, he goes, I got your resume beat. And so here's what he does. He goes through his resume. 
And it's a bunch of Jewish things, and I'll mention a few things, but just understand, he is saying, this is all the stuff I've done that should impress God. And he's looking back at his conversion experience, and he's saying, this is what happened to me years ago, and this is the present impact it should make on you. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. If you don't know what that is, just ask your parents. But basically, every Jewish parent, that's the eighth day. That's kind of what you did to be real Jewish. Of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, of the tribe of Benjamin. There's 12 tribes. There was two that were kind of set apart as elite. That's one of the two. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Basically, when the Greeks and the Jews started intermingling, there were these things, there was this thing called Hellenism, which basically the Jews were like, you're kind of, you're basically, you're sort of compromising with the Greeks. And he says, you know what? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I haven't compromised at all. And then he says this, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees are kind of like the Klingons in Star Trek. Everybody who's been to church, you've kind of heard, hey, they're the bad people. They're the bad people. Believe it or not, they didn't start off as the bad people. The Pharisees were actually literally called the separatists. They were separated, and they took holiness and the Bible really, really seriously. And they took it so seriously, what they do is they took the 613 commands that God had given, and they wanted to not even get close to those violating those 613. They put other rules around the 613. So they put rules around the rules to make sure they didn't even get close to violating the initial rule. Which, by the way, is a fairly decent definition of what legalism is as well. But here's what verse 6 says. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So if you remember, uh, zeal, by the way, back then was looked at as the highest virtue in Judaism. In other words, if like, man, if you were like really zealous and you loved God and you hated what God hated, then he goes, that was like the highest virtue. And so for him, back then, before he came to Christ, he persecuted the church because he thought the way is what it was called. The way, the way of Jesus, he thought, he thought that was against God. And so with all of his zeal, he went and he was dragging him and putting him into prison. And here's what he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Doesn't mean he was perfect. It just means when he compared himself to his neighbor, he's like, I'm looking pretty good. Verse seven, and whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now understand what he's doing here. He's basically taking kind of an, this is an accounting term. He's like, what he's starting to say is what I thought were my assets, I've, I had to understand my assets were actually my liabilities. And so he took all of that stuff he thought were his assets and he put them over to the liability category as he said, it's not about religion, it's about the gospel. Verse eight, indeed, same word, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing. That word knowing there is, uh, there's a word for like knowing, like if you just know somebody a little bit, and then there's a word for knowing somebody like intimately and experientially, and that's the word he's using there. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Three more verses. Or for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. All right, there's our word. There's our word right there. It's the word scubilon, all right? We're going to talk about what that means, and some of you are going to be mad, but it's fun. Uh, in order, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, one of the favorite terms the Apostle Paul had, it's used like 75 times in the 14 letters that he wrote. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Just right here, this ought to set some of you free. Just realizing what the gospel is. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
And then verse 10 and 11, which are not as speculative as they sound, he's actually talking about what he had to get to way back then and how it, how it is affecting them now, that I may know him. He's not like I may or I may not know him. He's like, I gave this stuff up so that I may know him, which he did years before, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, again, he's looking ahead. He's like, you know what, I did this, and that now I have a bright future, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, here's, what I'm, here's, my, here's my deal for you, whether you're at home or whether you're in here. As we go through the difference between religion and the gospel, I'm basically going to do what he did and put religion on one side and the gospel on the other side. I'm going to list, okay, here's what religion says, and here's the distinction that the gospel is, and we're going to kind of compare and contrast the two. Because we have to go through, I'm going to go through five of them just in this text, and so we're going to go through the malickety split. We're going to go through them pretty quick. I'm going to talk fast. You've got to listen fast, but I would encourage, some of you do it anyway. I'd encourage you, take out, take out some piece of paper, take out your phone, jot these things down, because what I know that I have to do is i got to refer to these things over and over, because like Luther said, I am hardwired toward works righteousness. And if I can get this stuff, it affects my prayer life. It affects how quickly I run to God when I fail. It affects the way that I even see other people. If I can just go back over and over to the right-hand column in the gospel and see the error of the left-hand column, it is amazingly freeing. Plus, somewhere in the book of Deuteronomy, if you take notes, your reward is greater in heaven. It's in there somewhere. So other than that, here we go. Ready? All right, religion and the gospel. So here we're going to do, we're going to do this. Each, so religion and the gospel, five distinctions right out of the text. There's more than this, but right out of the text, the difference between the two. Religion is all about what you do. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done. Religion, what do you do? The gospel, what Jesus has done. So right off the bat, he says, if you have confidence in the flesh, that's what I do. That's my resume. Again, he used to think it was an asset. Now he says, it's a loss for the surpassing worth, the incomparable worth of knowing Christ Jesus. You've probably noticed this. Everybody, all right, Bill Maher, Oprah, you know, everybody thinks, everybody knows something went wrong back then, right? Everybody knows something went wrong. All right, nobody looks around, particularly 2020, nobody looks around any year, though, and says, you know what, this is absolute perfection. Right? Nobody looks around and has never looked around and said, everything is great. Everybody knows something went wrong. Christians call that sin. Theologically, you go back to Genesis 3 in the fall. But listen to me carefully. All religions have the same answer with just differing details. They have the same answer with different details. To make you right or to make you right with God or to make things right, I have to do something. And it varies. The something varies, but it's everything from, uh, you know, I got to meditate or I've got to do the five, obey the five pillars or I got to go to Mecca or I got to do the chakra or something like that. I got to do something. The gospel is not what you do. It has been what's done for you. All right, I'm like Joe Visual. I got like three visuals for you tonight, all right? So here's visual number one, okay? This is Jesus' resume, okay? Pretty impressive resume, and this is my resume. Some of you are like, what's your favorite verse? What's your favorite verse? And for years, I'm like, I don't have a favorite verse, and I did the preacher answer. I don't, all of the verses are awesome. But actually, 
what I've come to know, at least right now and over the last three or four years, by far, if it's not Psalm 27, 13, it is definitely 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. So what that is saying is that Jesus literally became my sin on the cross. And somehow I literally get his righteousness. And so right here, you got Jesus's resume. It's super, super, super impressive, right? Second person of the Godhead. When he came down here in the incarnation, he lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. On his 33 years here, three years of ministry, he did everything from... 40 days of fasting to resisting the devil's temptation to feeding 5,000 to healing the blind man to doing all that stuff. That is his resume. And what he's saying is this, I get his resume into my life when I come to Christ. I get that. And then somehow, some way, he takes my resume, my resume of rebellion, my resume of failure, my resume of wickedness, my resume of greed, my resume of false motives, all that stuff. And somehow he takes that on his account. If you and I could just get this little illustration, just think about how that would change just your prayer life. I don't know about you, if I've had kind of a bad day or I hadn't thought great thoughts or hadn't had awesome motives or just woke up, I woke up the other day, I think it was, uh, what day was that? It was Monday. Monday, man, I just woke up and I don't know if it was just, I was like in the foulest mood. Lori's like, I'm praying for, I had a meeting at eight. It's like, I'm praying for the meeting. I was like, I don't care about the meeting. I was just in that mood, all right? And I'm thinking, man, all just, just, that's just one day. Now just think about just your, when you have that kind of day, how's your prayer life? It's not good, is it? And one of the reasons I don't want to pray on those kind of days is because I know, I know God knows what I'm thinking already. He knows I'm acting like a doofus already. And I'm like, all right, you're holy. I'm a doofus. I'm going to give you time to cool off. But if somehow, some way, I could just get the fact that, you know what? When he looks at me, he sees Jesus Christ and he sees me in Christ. And some of these are going to dovetail together. But just that, that would help us understand like Hebrews when it says, you come before the throne of grace with what? What does it say? Boldness. Boldness, not because you're some awesome prayer and not just because I'm some awesome guy. The reason we do that is because you come on the resume, the accomplishments of what Jesus has done. Please hear me. This is priests in churches. The gospel is not, the gospel is not, God is good, you are bad, try harder, I'll see you next week. That's not the gospel. The gospel itself is Christ suffered the wrath of God for my sin. He traded places with me, and now I'm in Christ, and when God looks at me, he sees the resume of Jesus on my life. That is just awesome right there. All right, that's just the first one. So, you taking notes? Uh, Religion. Religion is external focused. The gospel is internal focused. Religion is so much about the externals. What you wear, what you say, what you look at. The gospel starts from the inside first and goes after the character. Look at verse five and six. Just all that stuff on his resume, just all that stuff on his resume, it's all, it's all external. I got this national uh, background. I got this part of my family. Yeah, I got this. 
Religion focuses entirely, almost, on the visible life and overlooks the invisible life of the heart where our motives are. How one appears on the outside before people is way more important to the religious person than how one actually appears on the inside before holy God. Now, this, is, this, is the bull, this is the bullseye for a lot of us. Because you can be a Christian and then drift back toward being religious. I've told you before, I'm a recovering legalist. That's what I am. I mean, just, I'm a recovering Pharisee, all right? Early on in my Christian life, I had a lot of zeal and had a lot of legalism, all right? And when you get set free from that, it is amazing, but you still drift back toward that. And so when you look at this, Matthew 23 kind of sums it up. Uh, that's, the, that's probably the worst chapter, not the worst. It's like the most depressing chapter in the Bible uh, because the whole thing is woe, W-O-E. It's like, woe is you, woe is this, woe are the scribe. And he's talking to religious people. He's talking to people who took holiness seriously. And listen to me, church. He's talking to people who took the Bible real seriously. And what he says is he sums it up by saying basically this, you guys are clean on the, you're clean on the outside. You're so concerned about the outside, he said, but on the inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. And then he paints a picture. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like awesome on the outside, all shiny, but you're a tombstone. Because in the inside, it's dead. And so what he's saying is that is religion personified. So here's what that means. What that means is in a religious person, uh, a religious person typically has uh, pretty high morals, at least externally. Usually they're very concerned about how their kids act and what people say about how well-mannered their kids are. They probably keep their yard awesome. I mean, great neighbors pay their taxes, if their business card is out there, they're never going to do anything at all that would make you think less of them. But if it's just religion, what happens is all the external stuff is taken care of, but the inside is dead. That's why, let's just be honest, that's why sometimes, not all the time, sometimes, quote, religious people can be some of the most uh, unmerciful people around. This would be real. Sometimes religious people are super unmerciful. Like, well, that guy got himself in that trouble, or she got himself in that. Well, you know what? They probably deserve that, just unmerciful. Oftentimes unteachable. Unteachable. You can go, well, here it is, and this is the reason. Well, I don't care. This is the way. Unteachable. Unforgiving. Unforgiving. Sometimes religious people, sometimes religious people that sometimes are church people, not all the time, church people, you know what? Unforgiving. I will never let that go. You never seen a bitter church person? Come on now. You never seen somebody just still bringing up stuff that happened 15 years ago? Why do you not think churches split all the time? They split all the time, why? Because just pride gets in there and nothing, nothing gets resolved. And if they're, I will just say this, if they're unforgiving, if they're unmerciful, if they're unteachable, there's a good chance they're unsaved. Because when you are saved, I'm not saying there's not perfection there, but there's a difference that changes from the inside out. There's virtually no way you can really grasp the mercy of God to you and then consistently, belligerently be unmerciful to somebody else. Virtually no way you can grasp the forgiveness and the grace God gave you and then just diligently hold on to bitterness towards somebody else. I'm not saying you lose your salvation, you can't. All I'm saying is, when you get hit by the locomotive of God's grace, it changes you. But the religious person is like, no, I don't care. I'm, as long as the outside's good, the inside is uh, inside's okay. 
All right, let me give you another one. Religion. Religion always leads to one of two things, either pride or despair, depending on how you're doing, or the gospel leads to humility and confidence, or a humble confidence, some people would say. So you're like, why would, why would religion lead to pride and despair? Well, when you look at the text here, verse seven and eight, he's talking about all this stuff he did. It's just prideful. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I accomplished. But then he flips and he goes, man, but all that stuff was a loss. This is a loss when I understood who Jesus was. So there's a guy named Tim Keller who I quote a decent amount, and I don't know how to say it better than what he says in this one paragraph of one of his books. Here's what he says about this whole pride and despair, humility and confidence thing. He says, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. Let me just take a quick little confessional time here. By nature, I'm a disciplined person. So by nature, by upbringing, by nature, it is no problem for me to like get up at five. It's no problem for me to try to stay in decent shape. That's never been an issue. But what it did become an issue is I noticed that I would look down on people, think that they were lazy and slothful and whatever, when I wasn't checking the fact that that was a lack of character on my part. All right, delete that from the tape. So next thing, uh, Keller goes, he goes this, he goes, if and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel insecure and inadequate. I'm not confident, I feel like a failure. That's his deal on religion. But he says in the gospel, my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and yet accepted in Christ. That's a super key phrase. Luther, Luther had a Latin phrase that basically said, I am simultaneously, I'm simultaneously a, a sinner and justified. I'm justified by what Christ did, and I'm, at the same time, I'm a sinner. That's what he's talking about here. Keller says, I'm so bad he had to die for me. I'm so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time, neither swaggering nor sniveling. He says, going back to religion, he says, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work. That's what I was referring to about me or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those that I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. Please hear me. If you don't believe that at all, listen to talk radio. If you don't believe that, just go to Facebook. If you're mad right now, boom, case in point. The gospel, however, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, who is excluded from the city for me, I am saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace, I am what I am. I have no need to win arguments. Man, I need that. So, you're like, well, you gotta, how, how does that function with me? Here's the freedom in that. Now, verse eight is the cuss word, all right? Verse eight is the cuss word. He said, I count all these things as, now my translation says rubbish. Some of your translations and, you know, whatever, manure, dung. Here's what that word means. The word scubalon, and the word means waste, manure, excrement. It is slang for animal dung. So 
Western North Carolina, we're big on pets, correct? And so if you go to the park and you walk your dog, you need to carry one of these, right? Okay, don't be that guy that lets his dog doo-doo all over the place and then you don't do anything and you just pray nobody steps in it, okay? We step in it, we step in it every time. So what do you do? You're supposed to get one of these right here. And so when your dog does it on the sidewalk, you take one of these bags and a stick or something and you somehow get it into this bag. Now you didn't have this back, way back then. Way back there in the ancient cities, they had this kind of stuff all over the streets, all over the ditches. Remember how some of those cities when they describe them have a, what they call a dung gate? It's in the Bible, a dung gate. You know what that is? That is the gate where they get all the dung out. They just sweep it out, they wash it out. They're like, get that. Man, I wanna say it. Uh, I'm not gonna say it, not gonna say it. Get that scubula out of here, right? Some of you are like, get that horse scubula out of here. Can't believe I just almost said it. The idea is this, he's saying, listen, he's saying, when he said, he uses a word, as I said, that would have been looked at as a, a cuss word. And in verse eight, he says this, when I look at all the stuff I was trying to impress God with, when I brought him all my resume, well, I'm this, and I'm a Jewish this, and I'm a religious that, and I obey this, and I do all that. He says, it was an offense. It was like scubula. I look at that and go, man, that stinks. That smells. That is terrible. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's Tootsie Rolls in there. Don't worry about it, all right? So point is this. Point is this. this when he looks at that, when he looks at that, he's saying, that's an offense. It's an off I'm offended that I actually brought that to a holy God thinking that my resume would impress him. And the whole time, he's like, the son of God died for that. And so there's great humility. He's like, I, I don't even want to think that I was bringing that to God, thinking that that was the case. But on the flip side, you got this great confidence. Do you see that little phrase, in him, in him, in him, in him? So number, I was like, how do I get that? Because that's such a weird concept. He says, you're in Christ. Now, if you're a son or daughter, uh, by repentance and faith in Jesus, the Bible says you are now in Christ. That phrase, again, is used somewhere between 75 and 100 times just in the 14 or so letters the apostle Paul wrote, all right? That's like his favorite term. And what he's talking about is you have been placed in Christ. You've been justified. You've been declared innocent. It's not that you are innocent, but you've been declared innocent. It's the idea of justification, just as if you've never sinned. You've been placed in Christ so that when Christ looks at you or when God looks at you, he sees Christ and what he did on the cross. So here's, here's the, uh, here's, here's the, this is our figurine. I could, okay, Batman. All right, so here, uh, when you think about in Christ, here's another little word picture. Okay. You put, you got Batman in there, and if you're seeing Batman right there, you have to see, you have to look through the water to see Batman, right? You can't see Batman unless you look through the water. Why? Because Batman is in the water. And so to look at Batman, you have to look through the water to see Batman. In a much greater divine way, when Jesus adopts you into his family, you are then in Christ, and when God looks at you, he has to look, he sees you in Christ. You are in Christ, and he looks there, and he says, you know what, that son, that daughter, she is in Christ, and so when I look at her, I see her with Jesus' resume covering her, and so that gives you confidence. It's like, man, I'm in a great situation. 
And so uh, let that just sink in for a moment. Just let it sink in. I mean, right now, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, regardless of your situation, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's what he sees. Now, if we really believe that, I'm not talking about just up here, all right? I told you before, I did not really, I had this up here. Seven years of theological training gets it up here. But it wasn't until like less than a decade ago when it went from here to here. And when it goes to here, it changes everything. It, change, it, does, it changes the way you pray. It changes what you do when you do fail. Before I would run from God in my shame. Now when I fail, I run to God in repentance as long as I'm preaching the gospel to myself. It's the way you look at people differently. It's like, man, God showed me grace, I'm gonna show them grace. God served me, I'm gonna serve them. God was generous toward me, I'm gonna be generous toward them. God sacrificed for me, so you know what? It would be normal for me to sacrifice for somebody else. So the gospel just keeps changing stuff all the time. So here, let me get two more real quick. This is the one that's encapsulated everywhere. Religion is about self-righteousness. The gospel is about gift righteousness. Jot this down. This is the one you go back to over and over again. Religion's about self-righteousness. I mean, what's the number one thing, and sometimes it's valid, sometimes it's not valid. The number one complaint, number one and 1A, complaint against Christ followers. Number one is hypocritical. 1A is they're self-righteous. Self-righteous. Now, sometimes that's fair, and sometimes that's not fair. But what religion does is it's about self-righteousness. That's why he says in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. So let me give you one more picture. Picture that you, I know we don't know what's going to happen with the schools, but just picture you're a student again. And let's say you're taking a class and, and you're really not doing well in it at all. Uh, I remember one of my college roommates was a, uh, not, uh, he was a petroleum engineer. All right. I was believing I was a finance major, but when I looked at his stuff, I was like, that stuff's hard. I remember he had a class called uh, Differential Equations, or DIFFEQ is what they called it. And some of you engineers are like, that's easy. No, I was looking at that going, no, I don't know what those, I didn't know how to put my name down on that kind of paper. So act like you're in that kind of class. You're, you're struggling so bad. And then you go into the final exam. Your final exam is worth like 80% of your grade. And you look in there and you're like, I don't, I don't know the symbols. I don't know anything. I'm going to fail. And you sit there for three hours. You stare at a blank piece of paper. No, you, can't, you don't have any answers. After three hours, you're kind of sloughing your way up to the professor. You're about to hand your paper in all blank. And a student who you did not know comes up to you. And he takes your exam, puts his name on it takes his exam, puts your name on it, hands it in. He's the one that was going to get a 100. You end up getting the 100. He ends up getting your blank sheet of paper. That's the picture of what Jesus did. He took our sin, our zero, our failure, and gave us his 100. And so when it comes to Christianity, the self-righteousness, it's not an addition. It's not about what you and I did. It's all about what he did. It's like, this is what he did. So it's self-righteousness versus gift righteousness. But here, I gotta ask one more question. Is, uh, man, you ha have you, when you look at these, man, I know we're in this, I mean, if, I don't know where you're watching from, but we're located in the South. And in the South, you've got a bunch of great stuff, but you've got a bunch of cultural Christianity as well. 
question you got to ask is, have you received Christ personally? When you look at these characteristics, are you like, yeah, I'm like the left or I'm like, or I'm like the right? I mean, when you talk about, because here's what happens. Most religious, most religious people are not saved. Can I just, if I can be that blunt. Most religious people are not saved because in order to be saved, you can't have this. At least one time in your life, you can't be self-righteous. To be saved, you've got to understand, you know what? It's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus has done. That somehow on that cross, when he said, it is finished, that can counted for me. Have you done that? If you've done that, then what you had to do is say, it is a gift 100%. Man, if not, even I got a few more minutes, but if not, right now. Just say, I don't know all that I'm saying, but what I know is my sin put Jesus on the cross. He died not just for me, but he died instead of me. And as best I know, I am placing my faith, because that's really what biblical faith is. I'm putting my faith, my loyalty, I'm putting everything, I'm pushing all my chips to the center of the table, I'm with Jesus. And so when you get up to heaven, your confidence is not in, hey, here's the stuff I did for you, I went to church, I gave, that's not your confidence. You know what your confidence is? I'm with him, that's it. I'm with Jesus, I'm with him, and that's all you need. I'll give you one more. And this kind of caps it out. Religion knows a ton about God. The gospel actually, and this is, this is just a, it sounds mystical, but don't be so afraid of it. You know God. You, you actually have a, per, that's what, personal relationship with God. A personal relationship. Isn't that what he says? I mean, right here at verse 10, he says, all this is so that I may know him know him. Now, we definitely live in a world about, it's hard to understand what no means, you know, because we say, oh, I know him, or he follows me on Twitter, or, you know, he's Facebook group or whatever. Let me just, here's the one that came to mind. There's such a difference between, it's like, okay, I've told you before, one of my favorite top three actors in my, is Denzel Washington, all right? I love, I like, I know a lot about Denzel, all right? I know most of his movies, all right? Don't judge me, all right? I love most of his movies. One of the top five movies, my, my favorite movie is Man on Fire, all right? I'm High Justice, eight on the Enneagram, so just saying. I know a lot about Denzel Washington. Do I know him? I do not. We do not text back and forth. I've yet to see him comment on my Instagram. Oh, man, great church service. I hadn't seen that at all. You know why? Because I, I, know, I know about Denzel Washington. I don't know him. And loved one, if I could just be so bold as to say this, that is definitely a lot of religious people. Man, I know he fed 5,000. I know he, you know, Christmas time, we talk about the little baby in the manger and, you know, Easter, you know, we talk about the bunny and, and, the, and the resurrection. Somehow those go together and I know a lot about him. But do you know him personally? Do you know him personally? Right at the end, he gives you a couple of litmus tests. He says that I know, may know the power of his resurrection. Here's two litmus tests. Has there been any distinctive change in your life because of the gospel, because of you personally? Has there been a change? I'm not saying perfection. We say it's not about perfection, it's about progress. It's not about perfection, it's about progress. But if there's been no progress, if there's been no demarcation point, then don't be confident that you've gone from religion to the gospel. Second thing he says that I may share in his sufferings. Second litmus test would be this. Do you ever catch any grief because of your faith in Jesus? 
Now, we don't suffer like our brothers and sisters in China or Sudan. We don't suffer like that. But do you have any grief, not because you're acting like a jerk or you're acting self-righteous. I'm talking about do you have any grief simply because you love Jesus? It might be as small as I don't get invited to a party or a social or, or, or some, somebody didn't want to go out with me or something. But is there any grief at all? So I want to give you, I know a couple weeks ago I gave you a prayer. I want to give you a prayer that I think you can remember. The one we did a few weeks ago, some of you are like, oh, that's going to be my wallpaper on my, that's going to be my wallpaper on my uh, computer. So I'm going to give you a little different one. So this different one, you might or might not have it as your wallpaper on your computer. But uh, I tried to figure out how, how can we make this uh, stick? So I'm just going to, you're going to, so you've learned Latin tonight, uh, Greek, and probably some you know, kind of redneck English by me, but three languages, so you're, you already learned. Scubulon prayer, that's what it is. You're like, anyway, it, I thought it was good. You can comment further. Scubulon prayer, all right? Father, help me to break free. Man, that's what it is. When you get free from religion, you, you feel like you're a new person. Help me to break free from man-made religion, which by the way, Religion is not organization. That's why a lot of people, well, I don't believe in, religion is, or, no, God's an organized God. God spent numerous books telling us how to organize. It's not about organization. It's about ladders trying to get to God that we make up. So help me to break free from man-made religion and all of its, and I just, I just want ESV on you, all of its rubbish, okay? What's the word for rubbish? Not, not the bad word, the Greek, okay. Y'all fill it in yourself. I put the emoji there, smiley face. I like it, all right? Instead, remind me to preach the gospel to myself every day. Again, you don't get saved every day. You get saved one time, but you preach the gospel back to yourself. You know what? My identity is not in the team that I make. It's not in the grades that I make. My identity is the fact that I'm a bought, adopted daughter of Almighty God who loves me uh, so much that he knew all of my junk and still paid for me. That's your identity. And to live in the freedom and the power Jesus purchased for me on the cross in Jesus' name. How about that one, okay? So let me pray, and then uh, I'm not going to use Scubilon because I don't want the emails. Father, I want to thank you for uh, the freedom of the gospel. Thanks for the stuff you taught me this week. I pray you uh, taught uh, a lot of uh, folks tonight. Pray every day we preach the glorious gospel to ourselves. You're a good, good father. You're a great, great shepherd. And uh, our prayers is we, you just would drive us deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. God, during this season in the life of our church, thanks for I don't know how long it's going to go on, but these last four months, you've done some stuff that uh, is, is, is awesome as we've seen baptisms, even just the last four weeks, every night. And um, what our prayer is, is that as you drive us deep, you would also drive us wide into people's lives and that we would always be cognizant. God, you loved us. We want to love other people. We want to love our cities, our communities, our families. We want to love them well from the love you gave us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.